Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You are listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you would have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with your sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities, and then to align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a sales force development company. Enjoy the program. On our program tonight is Jason Jennings. He is a researcher and one of the most successful and prolific business and leadership authors in the world. Also, he is a keynote speaker that is much in demand. His Wall Street Journal USA Today, Business Week, and other New York Times bestsellers include It's Not the Big That Eat the Small, It's the Fast That Eat the Slow, and Less is More, and Hit the Ground Running. His latest book from the publishers of Penguin Putnam is about reinvention. The name of the book is The Reinventors, How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical Continuous Change. Jason, welcome back to the program. Jim, it's uh, great to be with you again. So people probably are not familiar, as I am, of some of your earlier business ventures. And so when this crossed my desk, I thought, well, who to be better to write a book on reinventing other than Jason Jennings? Because I get the impression, Jason, you've been doing that pretty much your entire career. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Jim. I, I, I guess I have always been driven by two things. W- one, the reason I do what I do is, is, is truly the thrill uh, of, of helping principled people uh, achieve their full economic potential. I, I, I think that's always been my story from my, from my days in broadcast, from my days in the consulting business. And, and the second thing I've always been is a, is a content uh, creator. I, I love creating content. And so uh, over the years, it's certainly moved from uh, radio and television uh, to consulting and seminars to books. And I'm excited about where the future is going to go. I'm, I, I just signed a contract for a few more books, but I'm not sure a few years from now how that material is going to be being delivered. So the process of researching the reinventors and writing the reinventors hopefully set me up for continued reinvention as well. As you went through and did your research on this book, were there some deja vu moments for yourself where you said, oh, man, I've, I've lived that lesson? Uh, yes, yes, there were. One of the chapters of the book, the second chapter of the book, is titled Letting Go. And, and it talks about the need, if a, if a company, uh, whether that's a small restaurant, a, a laundry and dry cleaner, a, a mid-sized manufacturer of widgets, or a, a major multinational, uh, if, they're going to con- if they're going to embrace continual radical change and, and, and if they're going to be reinventors, they, they need to let go. And there's a few things they need to let go of. They need to let go of yesterday's breadwinners. Most companies are unable to do that. Uh, They have to let go of ego, where the boss has to be the smartest person in the room. They have to let go of conventional wisdom. And I'm the first one to raise my hand and say, I have struggled with every one of those issues in my life uh, as well. All of us say we like change. Uh, Theoretically, philosophically, we say we like change. I say that's hogwash, because the day that change comes knocking on the door, we say, oh, not today, I'm too busy, I'm, uh, you know, I've got other things on my agenda. And so uh, letting go really spoke to me personally as well. I'm trying to express to the audience, and, and maybe you can do this, 
there are plenty of books out there about change. Yes. But this book really isn't, at least I didn't take it as a book about change. I took it as a book of how to stay relevant. Was that your attempt? Am I interpreting that right? No, man, did you nail that one on the head. And and it's the story of how the book came to be. Uh, you know, I had written my previous books. Generally, I average a new book every couple of years. And uh, and the publisher was was on me. Uh, where, where, where's your next book title? Where's the next book idea? And I was scratching my head because I can't devote a couple of years of, of my life to something unless I feel very strongly about it. And I was waiting for a muse to show up and, you know, sit on my shoulder and, and give me a subject and title. And one day I got a telephone call, and it was from the uh, my financial advisor who, who's handled the family money for, I don't know, 15 years now. And he, he's a very uh, boring and laid-back and conservative guy, but Gosh, he was he was almost breathless and excited. I'd never heard him that way. And he said, I have your next book. I have your next book. I have your next book. And I said, okay, tell me about it. And he said, I'm in San Diego at a conference being put on by IBM, a cloud conference. And he said, they just released the results of the IBM Global Study of the Marketplace, in which they interviewed 10,000 CEOs. And he said, listen to this number. He said, 67% of global CEOs say their current business model has less than three years of life left in it. And he said an additional 31% say that their current business model has less than five years. He said, Jason, that's a commanding 98% of global CEOs who believe their current business model is, is, is not going to be viable. And he said, you've got to do a book about reinvention. And then something clicked, and I realized that when I was doing interviews for my speeches and, and talking to about 1,000 business people a year for those, Instead of talking about staying alive, uh, like they were talking during the Great Recession, everybody was talking about remaining relevant, not becoming commoditized. How, how can we keep the business model relevant? And, and so I think the book truly is about how, how companies, small, medium, and large, I, I think it's really a step-by-step blueprint for remaining relevant through continual change. So let's get into the uh, meat and potatoes of this. The reinvention, as you talk about in your your book, it's really a a ruthless review and rebuild of the organization, which is very tough to do. But here are some of the questions. The questions are, what business are we in? What business will we be in? How are we going to get paid for what we do? How do we change everything we do to take advantage of the latest technologies that might not even exist yet? And how and when do we start pulling the plug into things we're doing now? Who stays and has a role and who goes? And what are the things we need to do to be relevant? Man, if that doesn't keep you up at night, (laughs) those series of questions. So my question is, is this really the foundation of 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 the book where you went out and pursued these answers to the people that you interviewed? No. Uh, I wish I could say that I was that bright. I, I always begin a, a book with the exact, in the exact same position. I, I, I think that too many authors who write about business come up with an idea or come up with a title and then go out in search of confirming evidence. And it's one of the reasons, <clears throat> excuse me, why I'm not a fan uh, of, of a lot of business books. I, on the other hand, uh, sit down with my publisher and we say, okay, it's going to take two years to research and write a book. 
So w- what do we think is going to be a good topic two years from now? Uh, so when I mentioned relevance and reinvention of my publisher, uh, he was all over it. He said, we're going to have left this recession thing behind. People are really going to be interested in relevance. And then I get together with my researchers and I say, okay, we have to forget everything that we think that we know about the topic of reinvention, innovation, and change, because this has to be research-based. And so uh, for the case of the reinventors, uh, what we did is we pulled every single one of the 22,000 articles. We searched them by keyword, reinvent, reinvention, innovation. Uh, there have been 22,000 magazine newspaper articles written on the subject in the past decade. We printed every single one of them out, and over a several month period of time, we read every one of them, and we began discarding them. Uh, too small, out of business, zealous misuse of the word. And, I mean, we were getting rid of thousands of them. We got down to several thousand, and we started saying, who uh, would people want to read about this company? We got down to a couple of thousand. Uh, does it have appeal? We began financially vetting the companies. We got down to about 100 began doing extensive telephone interviewing, got down to about 20, did our infield research, generated 100,000 pages of of, uh, interview transcripts, and then we sat down the old-fashioned way with yellow highlighters and said, okay, what do great inventors share in common? What are those eight or nine or ten traits that they all have? And we go through with highlighters, uh, through 100,000 pages of interview transcripts until we find them. So, no, I did not begin with a list of questions. We actually began uh, with a finite list of companies, and we truly wanted to find out how they embrace constant radical change. I was listening to an interview the other day, and the person was talking about the typical entrepreneur and some of the traits an entrepreneur brings to the table. Then he made an interesting comment. He said, these traits that I'm talking about can be very positive traits, but they cannot be taught or bought. And his point was, you you just kind of have these key traits to be a successful entrepreneur. Jason, how much of this is the people you interview are just, they're natural reinventors? And and how much of this can we actually expect to learn so we can remain relevant with our companies? Wow, fascinating question. Jim, I would say this, that if there was one thing that most of the people and most of the companies in the book share, because one of the questions I always ask during the interviewing process is, is who were your heroes, who were your mentors, who, who did you learn from? And this might surprise you, uh, but I found that the responses from, you know, I, I've now screened and studied 200,000 companies for the past six books, and I would say that an overwhelming percentage, 80 or 85 percent of people tell me that they didn't have a mentor, that they didn't have a hero, they only had people they did not want to be like. I think that's very significant. In fact, in many cases, that was the impetus or the reason for them going into business. Like, why did you go into business? Because I worked for a jerk who had it all backwards. I knew I could do better, and I promised myself I was going to do it the right way. And I would also suggest, speaking to the second part of your question, and I think there was a second part of your question, is, look, there was a fire, a drive, and an ambition, a desire and a need to do well. I suppose that is a spark shared by most of the great entrepreneurs and and business people uh, that I have met. But I am in a position to believe that great management and great leadership uh, can be taught provided 
the right moral high ground exists in the first place. Dan Sullivan was recently on a program. He is the founder of Strategic Coach. And Dan made a comment one time when I was listening to him. He said that in order to get to the next level, uh, when you're leading a company or yourself trying to get to the next level, he said, only take direction from your future self, disregard all options, you know, pick a target, and get rid of the rest of the distractions. Yes. And you have to be willing to go through any amount of pain in order to get there. In other words, the pain of change, and it is painful at times. Yes. So when you did your research in your Chapter 2, you talk about letting go. Was that part of the, the hardest part of reinvention is letting go of either key people that were your breadwinners or a key product line or a niche market that's been paying the rent for years? Well, sure. In fact, one of the stories we use to uh, illustrate it, I'm sure many people in your audience are, are familiar with the daring exploits of, uh, of smoke jumpers. And uh, I, I think it's a very apt story to set it up. You know, smoke jumpers are these highly trained elite firefighters who parachute into difficult terrain to put out wildfires. And uh, they are the best of the best. And not that many years ago, uh, 15 uh, of the bravest smoke jumpers were battling blazes in a deep canyon, and suddenly the inferno just turned and raced right at them. And they tried to retreat, scrambling up the steep walls to get away, and tragically, uh, 12 of them died. Uh, only three were able to escape. But here's what's amazing. Uh, the testimony of the three survivors and a review of the scene revealed a very surprising finding, uh, and that's this. Large pole axes, shovels, and 12 heavy backpacks 115 pounds per man of professional gear was on the ground hundreds of yards from where the smoke jumpers first turned from fighting the wildfire. Only three dropped their gear. The rest couldn't let it go uh, until it was too late. You know, in a lot of interviews I've been doing, people have been asking me, well, what about this company's failure? What about this company? Or what about that company uh, that's fallen on hard times? And in virtually every instance, it's because they were unable to let go. They were unable to let go of same old, same old. I mean, take a look at what's happening with RIM and BlackBerry right now, a company that two years ago is worth $77 billion. Today, market capitalization, $7 billion. I mean, $70 billion disappeared. Somebody ought to go to jail for management malpractice. But they couldn't let go of same old, same old. Many companies can't let go of ego, where the boss has got to be the smartest person in the room, and therefore, as a result of that, all the information they received, I mean, has been filtered to conform to their view or, or their vision of the world. Uh, they can't let go of yesterday's breadwinners. They can't let go of conventional wisdom. They just can't let go of greed. They can't let go of entitlement. And when you find a business failure, you read the chapter on letting go, and you're going to say, uh-huh, that's precisely why they failed and didn't make it. So in terms of, uh, of a starting point, uh, the ability to let go, uh, certainly seems to be required in order to embrace constant change and reinvention. You talk in your book about picking a destination. Tell our audience yes. about that. Yeah, I remember I was sitting down with, with Pat Hassey, uh, who I consider to be one of the great CEOs, and uh, uh, he took over a company called Allegheny Technologies, uh, and, and he's only mentioned on the periphery in this book because I had actually written about him in another book, uh, but it was so appropriate here. Uh, he had taken over this one great company, Allegheny Technologies. It had literally been looted, 
by previous leadership. The company was at death's door. Uh, the pundits did not believe the company could survive, and, and, and he took the helm. And, and he said the first thing uh, that a CEO, that a business owner has to be is a travel agent. And I said, excuse me, what do you mean a travel agent? And he said, you've got to pick a destination. He said, you've got you to go through all the pieces and parts, and you've got to say, now, where can we take this thing? And then you pick this destination. And he said, then it's the job of the CEO or leader or owner to sell everybody within the organization on accompanying he or she to this destination. And he said, when you find people in the organization who don't want to go to this destination, they've got to be offloaded. Uh, they can't make the trip. You can't bring people on a trip in the backseat of the car, yelling and screaming all the way, saying, I want to go home, I want to go someplace else. And he said, so really, the leader of a company, but, but I believe, I mean, you're on that great flamethrower of a radio station in America's heartland. I mean, there's a lot of people listening who, who are small business owners. I mean, you know, laundries and dry cleaners, restaurants, small manufacturers of widgets, whatever it is. I mean, it applies to everybody. What is that destination? Where are you trying to go? What is the sweet spot? What are you trying to be? Who are you trying to serve? And then it's the job of the leader to get everybody to want to go to that destination with them. And that's really one of the starting points of reinvention and embracing constant change. I believe your only differentiating value in the future is going to be your people who deliver your products and services. Yes. Uh, just relay to our audience what you discovered about the importance of having the right talent and then keeping that talent. Well, I'll tell you what. If, if, if you and your audience are ready for a life changer and one that will challenge everything that you've ever believed. I mean, here's the story that, that answers that question. I was sitting, and, and it goes to the very reason, the very question, why in the world would you want to reinvent something to begin with? Well, there's only one reason to reinvent something, and that's to become better. I mean, you don't need to reinvent something if you just want it to stay the same, and, and we know nothing does ever remain the same, or if it's going backwards and you don't care. So the only reason you would ever reinvent something or embrace change is to go forward. And so I'm sitting with the man I identify in the book as the quintessential reinvestor. His name is Mike Long. He is the CEO of Aero Electronics based in Denver, Colorado. He has built the company into a $22 billion powerhouse, one of the Fortune 100 now. And, and if you're touching a laptop or a desktop or a telephone, parts uh, within that have passed through the hands of Aero Electronics. And I, I remember sitting down with, with Mike Long, and, and I said, my Lord, you're just on a, you're nonstop buying businesses, inventing businesses, growing businesses. I, I said, how long do you continue to do that? And he said, forever. And, and I said, well, why? I mean, for the shareholder? And he looked at me like I'd just fallen off the back of a turnip truck. And he said, no. He said, you sure got that one backwards. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, Jason, here at this company, he said, I am surrounded by the greatest pool of talent I've ever worked with in my life. He said, now let me tell you something about talented people. Talented people want to have promotions. Talented people want to make more money. Talented people want new challenges. Talented people want more challenges. He said, if I am not constantly reinventing this business, buying new businesses, growing this business, he said, eventually, There'll be no opportunity for them to make more money. There'll be no more opportunity for them to get a promotion. There'll be no opportunity for them to be challenged, and they will leave. And he said, if they leave, where do they go? 
they either join my competition or they become my new competitors. He said the number one reason to be a serial reinventor is to stay ahead of your people so you can truly say that you're finding, keeping, and growing the right people. He said that's what allows you, when you have that in place, that's how you get to stay ahead of your customer. And by staying ahead of your customer's ever-changing needs, that's how you get to please the owner or the shareholder. He said most companies have it bass-ackwards. They try to serve the shareholder or the owner first. Let's close a few factories. Let's cut some jobs. Let's have some layoffs. We've got to hit the, the quarterly target profit numbers. He said that's wrong. He said that's old. He said you serve the shareholder well by staying ahead of your customers, and you stay ahead of your customers by finding, keeping, and growing the right people. And you can only find, keep, and grow the right people if you're growing the enterprise, because otherwise they're going to leave. And, Jim, I don't want to belabor the point, but in every speech I do, I get to talk to a couple hundred thousand people a year in those 80 speeches I agree to do. And one of the questions I always ask the audience is, how many of you, how, how many of you hope to make more money one day? Well, every hand goes up, all right? And I say, and how many of you hope to have a promotion one day? Every hand goes up. I say, okay, now, answer this one. Scream out the answer. Do you want that sooner or do you want that later? And, of course, the word sooner resounds to the raptor. Here's the reality. There is nobody that woke up today in the world, nobody, and said, I want tomorrow to suck more than today. <laughs> Nobody. Everybody is looking for a brighter tomorrow. Everybody is looking for a better tomorrow for themselves and their family. That's the reason you put your business, whatever your business is, on a course of embracing constant change and growth and being committed to a double-digit improvement in your financial performance every single year to find, keep, and grow the right people. That's, that's the reason to become a reinventor to embrace change. You talk about the opposing ideas. Just tell me more about that. You said that the, the reinventors hang on to these opposing ideas. Well, in order to become a serial reinventor and, and, and embrace change, here's what we learned from the expert you have to hold on tight and freely let go. You got to be very hard nosed, you got to be very soft hearted, you got to focus on a clear destination that we already talked about. But you have to be constantly searching for new horizons. You've got to take big risks, and you've got to make small bets. You've got to be frugal, but sometimes you still have to splurge. You've got to think big. You've got to act small. You've got to be highly creative, and you've got to be obsessively down to earth. And you've got to thoughtfully work your plan, but then you've got to be able to improvise your plan. And, I mean, you can almost hear the naysayers whining, would you please just make up your mind and pick one of the others? Well, the reason we wrote that is this, as a setup for systematizing everything, because it is a word that scares everybody. Every time anybody hears the word system, oh, no, you're not going to systematize what I do. That's going to stifle my creativity. I won't be free to express myself if anything becomes systematized. Well, as we say in the book, that is a load of hogwash. Here's what happens in most companies, Jim, and you've seen it and you know it and so do your listeners. How many stupid meetings do people go to? How many wasted strategy sessions do people go to? How much wasted conversation is there in business about reinventing the wheel? I mean, I would suggest to you that 90% of meetings have absolutely no worth or value whatsoever. They're talking about the exact same thing all over and over again. What we found that incredible reinventors do 
incredible companies that embrace constant change, the first thing they do is they systematize everything that can be systematized. Now, here's what that allows you to do. That allows you then to concentrate on the fun stuff, which is growing the business. But if you're always bogged down, I mean, re, I mean re, doing a redo. So if, if there's one way to answer the telephone, that, and, and it's the best way to answer the phone, figure out the best way to answer the phone, then everybody answers it the exact same way. If there is a best way to process an order, then figure out the best way to process the order, and everybody does it the exact same way. If there is a best way to make a sales call, then everybody does it the exact same way. And when you standardize best practices and turn best practices into a system, then that's when you're able that's when you've got the time for the fun. And the fun is actually growing the business and splitting up the spoils and everybody doing better financially. That's I mean, that's the point of business. I mean, to thrill a customer and to do well. And, and, and most people as individuals, they just fight any form of systemization. And, of course, that's wrong. You've got to systematize, I mean, everything that can be systematized with the best practice so you've got time for the fun stuff. Uh, are we in the decade of reinvention? Oh, I, I, I think, uh, Jim, my friend, I think we may be, uh, I'll, I'll settle for the decade of reinvention, but I think that we are in for several decades of constant reinvention. And, 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 and you mentioned, uh, I guess, one of my favorite words, the convergence of, of so many things. Um, the, the convergence of digital, which is truly going to continue to change the world in ways that we can't even imagine, and it's happening at lightning-fast speed. There's no sign that that's going to slow down. The fact is that every consumer today is more knowledgeable, whether they know it or not, than they have ever been before. They are sophisticated consumers. Uh, and because of the transparency in the digital age, I mean, there's no place for any pla- anybody to hide. So if you're uh, a lawn and garden, if you have a lawn and garden business in Des Moines, and you know you were there for, uh, you've been there for the past 25 or 30 years, and you've been doing your three million dollars primarily during a good summer season, and you've been putting three to four hundred thousand dollars to your bottom line every year, and doing it very quietly because uh, you don't want anybody to know how well you're really doing. Well, guess what? There's no place to hide that anymore. I mean, if you're doing that, that's transparent. It's the transparency of everything. Uh, There is not one individual, one business, who is not going to have to constantly be reinventing themselves nonstop, nonstop, at at almost warp speed. What stands out the most about this body of work? I think something I, I took a lot of your time and uh, talked about, that the reason to reinvent is to do better and improve. And step number one is doing it for the benefit of the people within the organization, because that's the only way that you have a snowball's chance in hell of staying ahead of the customer. And unless you're staying ahead of the customer, you don't have a snowball's chance in hell of staying ahead of the owner or shareholder. And I remember, Jim, as recently as um, 
maybe as recently as, as 10 years ago in business, when you mentioned the people thing, uh, tough guys in business and tough CEOs in business, they'd kind of roll their eyes back and they'd say, oh, that's kind of the soft side of stuff. Sounds like something for HR as far as I'm concerned. Well, I, I don't think there are many CEOs who believe that anymore. They, they truly get it. The only thing that gives any value to any enterprise uh, are the people within the organization. It's not a supply chain. It's not patents. It's not ideas. It's not what they manufacture, sell, produce, or service. None of those things count. The only thing that count are the people within the organization. The, o- the only important stuff is the soft stuff. And, and, and again, I guess my journey, I wrote the book on speed, and it's not the big that eat the small, it's the fast that eat the slow. I wrote the book on productivity and less is more. I wrote the book on growth and think big, act small. I wrote the book on the creation of value and leadership. It hit the ground running. I've done this one. And, I mean, uh, the, the, the journey has been a remarkable journey uh, to hear me say it's only the soft stuff that counts. The hard stuff doesn't count. I just wondered if there's one question that I should have asked you tonight that I missed. Uh, is there one question that you failed to ask me? You know, I, I, I guess the way I would sum it up is is, is this. I, I enjoyed doing uh, the last chapter of the book. And I know that this parallels, because I followed your career, and so I think this parallels your career as well. And the last chapter is titled, Don't Hesitate. And, 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 and here's where the story in the book uh, came from. Uh, I live outside, the family and I live outside of San Francisco in a small little village on the bay. Uh, but we love spending time uh, at our place in uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Uh, we built a, a lakeside log and stone place there a few years ago. And, and, and we love America's heartland and America's Midwest and Upper Midwest. And, uh, but, I, but I speak almost every week someplace. And, and so generally one of the family members runs to the airport, which is about an hour away from our summer place, and picks me up. Uh, well, last summer I, I was going to be arriving on, like, the late-night flight that comes in at 10 or 11 o'clock into Marquette, Michigan. And, and I didn't want somebody driving an hour in from the lake. And so uh, I said, you know, there's got to be a taxi cab service or a car service up here. And, and, and so we found a car service, and we made arrangements uh, for this car service to pick me up. And I had my fingers crossed as we landed. Jeez, I hope he's going to be there. I'm going to be stranded in the middle of nowhere at this small little airport. But, but there he was. His name was Jared. And he had a little sign, uh, Jason Jennings. And, and uh, we got in the car. And I was on the phone uh, with the lodge letting the family know I had arrived safe and sound uh, and doing a couple of texts. And uh, he did not have a radio on. And, and so when I finished those housekeeping things, all of a sudden it was kind of silent in the car. And I don't like silence, I guess, a lot. And I said, so, Jared, I said, uh, tell me your story. I said, how did you come to be a, a cab driver in the northern peninsula of Michigan? And he said, well, and he looked in the rearview mirror and he caught my eyes and he said, you might say that I'm keeping my hands dirty. Well, I almost fell out of the car because keeping my hands dirty has been a theme in a couple of my books. I mentioned in every one of my speeches that the only, the only way a CEO or the owner of a company can stay relevant is to keep their hands dirty and hang out with customers at least 50% of the time. And I said, where'd you come up with that phrase? And he said, well, you might say that I've read all of your books. And I said, you're kidding me. And he said, nah. he said I actually own the company. 
And he said, I, I just wanted to take an opportunity to spend some time with you and pick your brain tonight. And I said, I love it. I said, tell me your story. i got to know about you. And here's a story very briefly, and it will bring me to the point. Uh, he said, I grew up at a farm uh, about 100 miles away from Marquette, Michigan. And he said, I went to university. I always wanted to be a high school teacher, and I wanted to be a football coach. And he said, I had an opportunity to go to Bakersfield, California, and uh, got a job coaching and teaching and married my high school sweetheart. We had a couple of kids. And he said, it became painfully obvious that you're not, never going to become rich uh, as a high school teacher and coach. And he said, one day, he said, a number of years ago, he said, I was watching an infomercial on television. He said the guy's name was Carlton Sheets and some real estate system for going out and buying houses with very little money down. And he said, on a whim, he said, I, I, I bought it. And he said, you know, the amazing thing is, he said, I followed it. He said, I decided to do everything uh, on that program. And he said, you know what? He said, I eventually owned like 35 places in several years, and I really used none of my own money. And he said, I guess that goes to prove, you know, if you follow any system the way it's described, he said, there's something there for you. And he said, but then the wife and I heard about a $4 million condominium project back here uh, that was in trouble, and I figured that if I sold every one of the places in California, I mean, I would have enough money to swing this 4 to $5 million deal. And he said, so we did it. So we found ourselves in this $5 million deal here. And he said, but I continued to buy houses here. And he said, one day I was going through a house, and uh, they had an old checker cab in the garage. And I said, what's that? And they said, well... The owner tried to start a checker cab franchise and didn't work. He said, well, I'll buy the house if I can have the car. And so he decided to start a little taxi cab company on the side. And he said, what I decided to do is he said, I would be the dispatcher. I would take all the phone calls. He said, because, again, I had to keep my hands dirty. And he said, by taking all these calls, he said, I knew there was a business here. And he said, a year later, he said, we had about 15 checker cabs. He said, we had a number of limousines. We had a bunch of buses. And, I mean, he said, it's a booming success. And I said, well, how much money are you worth? And he says, I don't know. I don't really keep track. He said, I suppose five, six, seven million dollars. And I said, how old are you? And he said, I'm 34. And I said, this is absolutely amazing. And then he said something that stunned me. He said, no. He said, it's not that amazing at all. Uh, he said, I'm not that particularly bright. And he said, that's not false modesty at all. And he said, I did it throughout the course of the greatest recession in recorded history since the Great Depression. And he said, anybody else can do it, too. People just have to learn not to hesitate. And I said, well, what's your end game? And he said, end game? He said, what in the world would I want an end game for? He said, I'm providing employment for lots of people. I'm growing the real estate. I'm growing this. He said, I'm having the time of my life. I mean, he said, I just want to keep changing and growing. He said, but the message is, don't hesitate you know, you just have to do it. And, um, and you invoked a, a Chinese proverb earlier, so I'll close with a Chinese proverb. And it's the one I end the book with, and that is this. Man will sit on chair with open mouth for a very long time waiting for roast duck to fly in. <laughs> Jason, it, it's, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for being on the program. I really like you. I really love your questions. I can't wait to get a link to this on the website. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you. This or other BizTalk podcasts may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. You can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. 
If you want to learn the strategies on how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact Performance Group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net.